I am so excited to be part of a church that gets involved in real needs at Christmas time. Our Christmas Give 2021 initiative is getting involved in some big areas. Our chaplaincy ministry involved in local outreach, helping to meet real needs, as well as furthering our Young Decatur ministry. And I want you to take just a few moments to hear a little bit more about our Parsons project that we're getting involved in as you prayerfully consider how you can participate in Christmas Give 2021. My name is Rhonda Gamley, and I have been teaching at Parsons for 25 years. First Christian Church has partnered with Parsons Elementary for about 16 years. They have given the opportunity to have their gift boxes for Christmas given to the kids. They have given t-shirts for the faculty and the children along with books. They have offered the 305 Club, the after-school program. They also uh, sponsor a first grade Thanksgiving feast for the first graders every year, which is really fun for the children. The Parsons family really appreciates the partnership because we can always count on First Christian Church. Whatever our needs are, we just ask them and they're always there for us. We get together on Thursday mornings and BJ comes and prays with the staff. So it's a great partnership we have, we're blessed. What we appreciate most about the Christmas project that First Christian Church has always been willing to do for our children, the excitement the kids see. They all get their own shoebox and it's wrapped and each teacher does it differently. I like to have my kids around in a circle and we take turns and the kids are really excited even for each other, what they gift, um, what they get out of the box. Some of them are really excited about their gloves they get to wear when they're waiting for the bus. I've heard some kids say, oh my goodness, I've always run into a red scarf. So just the excitement on their faces and opportunity to, to witness that. It's just a wonderful experience. Um, the kids always like the books. Sometimes they don't have a lot in home books, so it gives them opportunity to have another book. And um, like I said, when we, they witness each other opening gifts and the excitement and the kindness they show for each other. It's exciting and the things they they get in their box maybe they've never had before. So their excitement is, is wonderful to see on their faces. I would just like to say again how much we appreciate the First Christian Church, whether um, there's a family in need at Parsons that we know about, we can reach out to First Christian Church. We can say we need this size of clothes, this size of shoes for the children, and they're always there to help us, whatever our needs are, to come pray with us. We appreciate all they have to offer for us. Every student gets opportunity to experience First Christian Church. Start out with first grade with the Thanksgiving feast and then the 305 club they have for second through sixth grade. So it's just an overall wonderful, wonderful opportunity for our children. So uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here. And uh, we'll, you're going to get more information at the end of the service about how you can participate beyond just the give, uh, Christmas gift 2021. The size of Parsons School has doubled this year. It's gone from 300 students to 600. So we have a big challenge in front of us. You'll learn more about that yet to come. Welcome to First Christian Church. Welcome to each and every one of you. Or if, if you're joining us online or in the West Auditorium, I'm really thrilled you're with us here in the West. Uh, thanks for being with us. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and uh, we're going to spend some time looking at Scripture today. We're going to look at the book of Luke, which is, I don't know, three-quarters of the way through the Bible. I invite you to take a Bible today, or if you've got it on your smartphone, uh, we'd be glad to have you take a look there, okay? So, as we start to look at the book of Luke today, um, I'd say, I guess, welcome to the Advent season, uh, and welcome to a sermon series that's uh, 
called Recovering Christmas, and it's really the focus is how do we how do we figure out what true comfort and joy is, and so you'll see this sort of logo and this approach in the coming days, uh, because the Advent season, the waiting for Jesus is here, and Christmas will soon be here, and um, the marketing folk. Um, Legitimately, uh, this is a busy shopping season. They're going to strive to sell you all sorts of stuff that's going to bring you all kinds of comfort and joy, for sure. They're going to say you can buy their thingamajig or their bobbit, their whatchamacallit and their trinket, the thingamabobbies and the doohickeys and the knickknacks and the absolutely you need this gadgets, uh, all in an effort to make us think that comfort and joy is attached to that particular thingamabob. And fair enough, that's how it works. I've got all kinds of thingamajigs and uh, bobbits and whatchamacallits and trinkets and thingamabobbies and doohickeys and knickknacks, and you absolutely need this bobble. I have all that at our house, and uh, some of them are more joyous than others. But who are we kidding? Do those things bring me comfort and joy? Probably, Because uh. if you want to talk about finding comfort and joy, for me, it's pretty easy where you go. You go, leave all that stuff behind, and comfort and joy is found most adequately and most profoundly, at least at the house, if you will, food. (laughs) Food. Mashed potatoes. Whoever invented mashed potatoes did a, a, humanity is forever grateful to that person, for sure. Or um, a thick, hearty soup with some great bread, all bread. Now we're talking comfort. I never met a piece of bread I didn't like. (laughs) Absolutely. And just thinking of it, uh, just bread can make me hungry. When I was a kid in Australia, uh, we used to have, uh, well, we would carry lunch to school in um, in what we would call a lunch lunch pail of some sort. Um, But but we we would call them, we had school cases. And I'm going to make you uh, something here today that is reminiscent for me. And um, we would carry our lunches to school, but now and then, very occasionally, mom would say, hey, you're going to buy lunch school today. And we didn't buy it at the, at the cafeteria because we didn't have cafeterias, at least in the school I grew up in. We had a canteen that was actually a building on the, on the playground. You could go to the canteen and you could buy your lunch there. And um, I'm ready to either make a sandwich or do a procedure, which you would prefer me to do. <laughs> I am a doctor after all. You know that, right? <laughs> Just the wrong kind. So, so we, we, if I was going to get lunch at school, I would get something called a hundreds and thousands sandwich. And one of you lucky souls is going to get to try this today. Actually, I did this last night. And would you believe after the service, I had a number of people come up to me and say, can I try just a bit? And it was all gone as they all left, but nonetheless. So here, here's what it is. It's white bread with butter, as much butter as you want, as much as you would like. <laughs> and it's got to be on there good and thick. Because by the time you're done, it's going to taste like shortbread. And then you know what you do? The piastre de resistance. Sugar. 
some of you going, oh, I remember this from when I was a kid. You, you were, if you were poor, you did this. And then the hundreds and thousands, what we in America called sprinkles, like cake sprinkles, okay, you got this? Just go like this. It's a carbohydrate high. <laughs> and you mash that down into the butter, and then it's going to look like this. Rick, I know you can hardly wait to try this, right? You can hardly wait. You're not a diabetic, are you? One of the few things you're not. Okay, here's the choice. A procedure or a sandwich? <laughs> okay, you're going to try this, dude? Here we go. That's better than you thought, isn't it? <laughs> no, we're going to see... No, you can't have seconds. So, yes, this is what we would eat when I was a kid. And um, I, I would, so we, we, we did this earlier on in the week. Brian and I cut a video. You'll, you'll see it later. And I had not tried this in about 50 years. And the moment I tried it on, on the video, and we did the video in one cut because we wanted to make certain that I, my expressions and his expressions were, like, legit. And so when you see this video later, this was like, immediately I was transported. I was a 10-year-old kid wearing shorts, a, sh a uniform at school. We, in Australia, we wear school uniforms with, with shorts, long socks, dress shoes, a shirt and a tie and the whole bit. And I was immediately that 10-year-old kid sitting in the playground again. Glorious. How do you describe comfort and joy? Is it something like that? Here, BJ, you should take this so that I don't get tempted to eat it. How do you describe comfort and joy? For me, what brings a few moments of sweetness and relaxation? For me, I could think of a, a soda in the evening and sitting at the piano. And we have a piano at the house and maybe playing for 15, 20 minutes. It just sort of soothes my soul every night. I play there. I maybe read brand new music or music that I've played before, just play by ear, whatever the case. What's your place of comfort and joy? Is it the beach? A lounge chair at the pool? Is it a porch on a cabin in the mountains? Is it, hey, I get to go and be in my office by myself, privacy? Or I get to be and I find great comfort in people. The more people, the merrier. Where's your place of comfort and joy? Our present world, our global setting doesn't feel very comforting at present. It's, it's, I wouldn't say there's not a lot of joy around. You think about what we've faced in recent months in the global scene, a global pandemic. We have a lot of wars taking place in nations. People's lives are literally at risk in Yemen or in Ethiopia. We have nations in great peril. Lebanon, since the um, explosion in Beirut, they have no, no basic resources left. They're done. You think about the cartel, the drug cartel's influence in Mexico and how... Uh, there and in places like um, in, in El Salvador and places like that. If you're a policeman, you have to wear a, a cover over your face so that people don't know who you are because your life is in danger. Cuba, where there is not enough food any longer. The setting in Afghanistan, which seems to have moved off our 24-hour news cycle, but it's just a few weeks ago that we saw... What are we... Is, it's, still, it's still going on, right? 
and then we have in our own nation. At times we feel like we're being torn asunder right down the middle of our lives like an old rag with politics and racism and economic disparity and supply chain crises and the list goes on and on. And that's just the stuff outside your house. Let alone what your family is dealing with from time to time or maybe right now. And I'm coming to believe that some white bread covered in some butter and a little bit of sugar might be the most comforting thing of all. Because if our story, if my, if my assessment of our story state of affairs in our nation abroad is accurate, then you want to go, how on earth can something like Christmas coming in a few weeks right from now, is it really going to provide us comfort and joy? How can we recover the wonder and the amazement and the awe of a joyous Christmas day? How can I prepare for that? Advent is the time when you prepare for Christmas. It's, this isn't the Christmas season. We're not there yet. But we'll be examining that question throughout the coming series, leading us all the way to our Christmas services. And I want to remind you just now, and you'll learn more about this in the service again later on, there are eight Christmas services, all of them identical, beginning uh, the Saturday before Christmas. So pay attention to that, okay? But for now, how can we discover some comfort and joy within a pre-Christmas story, within an Advent story, particularly in Scripture today, in the months prior to Jesus' birth? We're going to read in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, where we're going to learn about a man and his wife and a young son who, um, oh, let me give you a little bit of background so as we read it, it makes sense. The setting in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1 is about 12 months or so before Jesus was born. And the narrative focuses on Jesus' distant relatives by marriage. It's a guy named Zechariah, an old guy, and he's married to a woman by Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, who is a, a cousin, third, four times, six times removed from Mary, Jesus' mother, okay? And Zechariah and Elizabeth, in their old age, they suffered with a difficult and painful dilemma that crosses nationalities, it crosses creeds, it crosses culture, and it crosses generations. When people suffer from this, for, and as they have for generations, it's painful, because sometimes wonderful, happily married people, these couples fail to have children, not by choice, but by circumstances, by infertility. And the result is pain and trauma and great difficulty at times. Zechariah uh, belonged to a lineage and a genealogy that he could trace his lineage all the way back to ancient Israel's um, priestly family. As a descendant of Aaron, so Aaron was Moses' brother, Moses being one of the main leaders of Israel, and he had a brother by the name of Aaron. Aaron became the high priest of the nation of Israel. And he could trace, Zechariah could trace his lineage and his bloodline way back to Aaron, I mean, generation after generation after generation. And as a result, as being part of that priestly family, he has, has some privileges, but he also has some responsibilities, namely that he, his whole family, all, every descendant of, of Aaron is responsible for the nation's worship. And in the centuries before our story, serving in the temple full-time would have been Zechariah's job. I mean, he would, have been, he would have been employed as a temple staff member, if you will. But as the centuries move along from Aaron and Moses in the days, you know, thousand, more than a thousand years, as the nation's population expanded, the same could be said of Aaron's priestly family. They grew and grew and grew. And yet, there's still only one temple, and there's still only 365 days in a year. So they have more priests than they know what to do with. And so over a period of time, um, 
these priests develop side hustles. And they develop jobs that at times are even away from Jerusalem. In that Zechariah's case, he doesn't need to be at the temple all the time. He's got a job. And then every once in a while, for two weeks at a time, he would get called up to go to Jerusalem and say, okay, I'm going to do now what I'm really, what I was born into. And for two weeks now, I get my turn to do something. I get to be a staff member in the temple. You can think of it as a chaplain serving the National Guard. One job back home. But every now and then, this chaplain gets called up, and he goes off, and he goes up to the temple, and they're called into service. And once in Jerusalem, there'd be all these men coming in from various places around the country, called into service, and they would cast lots to see not who would just be crowd management, if you will, but who was it who would actually get to go inside the temple in the inner space. And in our story, that's what happens. Zechariah gets to Jerusalem. He's going to be there for two weeks. He wins the raffle, if you will. He wins the lot, and he ends up inside the temple. Let's see what happens. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, and we're going to come back to Herod, and I just want to say this. I've got one main point of today's message, okay? We're going to tell the story of what happened, and then one main point, and I want to see if you can catch it as we get closer to it, okay? So in the time of Herod, and Herod's got something to do with 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 the story. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So they're both from this family. Now, they're not doing something that's wrong. They are distant, 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 distant relatives, but they're both from that priestly family. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were childless, though, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, so now he's, he's the National Guard guy, he's been called up, and he was serving as a priest by, before God, what happened? He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into, into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And while he's in there, by himself, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Like you... When he saw the angel, he was a bit freaked out, if that happened to you. Okay, he was afraid, and the angel says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And this is what he will do. He'll bring many people back to the people of Israel, to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And then what's, that, what's it called to do that? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to prepare this little baby when he grows up. He's going to prepare people for Jesus. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. You're going to have a baby. No, he didn't quite say it like that, but he did say, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you, and I want to tell you this good news. And so we have this wonderful story. An aged couple, assuming they're going to go to to their graves without a child, and they receive a miracle. A son is born. They name him John. And John's name literally means that God is gracious, that they get this they have this gracious gift that they were unexpecting. This, this baby is born, and this baby that is their son named John, this gracious gift changed the world. 
He was just a few months older than Jesus. They were dist- Jesus and John were distant cousins. And it appears from other passages of Scripture, they, they, they sort of grew up together. They at least knew each other. And it was John who, as a 30-something, years later, he stepped into ministry at 29, 30 years of age, and he became known as somewhat of a firebrand. And he would go around and say, you, you, you know, you need to repent. You need to get your life right before God. And then, but he, then he used that influence to say to the people around him, don't listen just to me. I, I'm just the setup guy. I'm just the warm, I'm up the, I'm the warm up act. I'm preparing your hearts and your ears, helping you get ready for the main artist, a guy named Jesus. That's the message of verse 17 when the angel says, Zechariah, your son will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous, and to do what? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yeah, there you have. Zechariah learns we're going to have a baby, and this baby is to get everyone's attention to then point people around us to Jesus. And of course, you're wondering, Wayne, this story's getting a little bit old already. And uh, how is this in any way recovering Christmas? And where's the comfort and joy? I mean, this is an Advent series. We're supposed to prepare for the celebration of Jesus' arrival. And, well, I want you to pay attention to what happened when John was born. His, his father, the old guy, Zechariah, he started singing. And you can see it in verse 68. Verse 68, he starts singing and he says, based on the fact that I now have a little boy, he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people, he's redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So um, a horn, by the way, is literally a reference to an animal with a horn like an ox. And a, a, you know, an ox will use a horn as a, as a position of strength and as a battering ram, if you will. And so he's saying he's raised up a position of strength of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, that we're going to get salvation from our enemies. Think about this is the Roman Empire. So we're going to get salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. And he's going to show us mercy to our, he showed mercy to our ancestors. And he's remembering his holy covenant, a covenant, an oath that God swore to our father Abraham, we'll pay attention to that in a minute, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's a new day coming and it's going to be really sweet. And then he speaks of his son, John. He says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before Jesus. You'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. And what's the result of Jesus going to do? It's going to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. And the result of Jesus is we'll, that Jesus will guide our feet into the path of peace. And this is the outcome of John's birth. Zechariah states that his son will be recognized as a prophet of God going before Jesus the Messiah, going before Jesus in order to prepare people to receive God's tender mercy. And if you're looking for some comfort and joy beyond some white bread covered in sugar, or even, if you will, a soda sitting at the piano 
and playing in the evening or your place in the mountains, in the cabin or at the beach, whatever, then Zechariah's story is for you. If you're feeling like, man, I'm living in the mess right now, then Zechariah's story for you. Because did you notice that he mentions Abraham and David? That's crucial. Because Abraham and David, uh, who are forefathers of long ago, those two fellows coming up in Zechariah's song is important. But you've got to know a little bit of the backstory. See, Zechariah is, says that salvation is coming in mercy from God in the way that God promised Abraham, that we're going to see our enemies subdued and we're going to be allowed to serve God without fear. We're going to do that in holiness and a path of peace for our feet has arrived. But remember the setting. Israel is occupied by the Roman army. The nation has been in subjugation of some sort for more than 700 years. The nation of Israel is together as a unit. In 721 B.C., the Assyrians showed up and wiped out uh, 10 of the 12 tribes. Just they were obliterated. That was in 721. And the Assyrians ruled until in 586, the Babylonians showed up and they wiped out the Assyrians and a few more people. And the Babylonians were in charge until the Greeks came. And then after the Greeks came, then came the Romans. And so the people of Zechariah's day are anxious for good news. They're saying, we expect, we need something. We need God to shine on those living in darkness. To the people who are living in the shadow of death, we've been living this way for 700 years. We need to have somebody guide our feet into the path of peace. Because that, those people there in Jerusalem have longed for some comfort and joy for more than 700 years. And John is born with Zechariah declaring the comfort and joy of God Almighty is here. It's coming in Jesus, even though at that point, Jesus' birth is still a few months away. So, see if I can paint this picture for you to understand what's going on in Zechariah's mind. Rome has established in Jerusalem a puppet leader. Rome is a long way away from Jerusalem. And they, they need to know that the far outreaches of their empire are, are at peace in terms of no civil war and that money is flowing to Rome. And so they installed a puppet leader, a, a vassal king, if you will, who was responsible to tax the nation, to keep the peace, and to demand allegiance to Rome. And they chose a man who was Jewish and Arab. They chose an Arab Jew. And history knows him as Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, by the way, if you remember the story of Jesus' birth, and the wise men showing up at Herod's palace, and when he learns that a king has been born, and he wants to have all the babies 24 months and younger from Bethlehem, all the, all the boys murdered, that's the guy. This is the guy who is running the place from Jerusalem. And he was a bad man, an evil man, very, very wealthy because he would take a little slice off all the taxes that he would take. And he grew increasingly mentally deranged as he grew older. And what's fascinating is Herod's story and John's story and Zechariah's story and Jesus' story, they all converge right here in the temple as Zechariah has the angel come before him. You could think of it this way. Herod, <clears throat> Herod the king, is the king of some backwards nation far, far away from Rome. But as the king of Judea or the vassal king, he gets lots of perks and he wants to stay in favor of whoever is the emperor in Rome. i got to be in that man's good graces. But he'd messed up in that regard. During those days, there was, in fact, a civil war in Rome. 
And remember in 44, maybe we don't remember this, but I'll, I'll help you remember. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar had been assassinated. And he had, um, he had been the one who brought the whole Roman Empire together. And he'd been assassinated by 60 different men. In, on the Senate floor, 60 men had attacked him, 23 of them. He actually had 23 stab wounds in his body. The one that did the fatal blow was one that came through his neck. And they all had gathered around him and stabbed him to death. And then civil war broke out because with, with, with Julius Caesar dead, who's going to be the new emperor? And two fellows fought for power. A guy by the name of Mark Antony and a guy by the name of Octavian. I'm making you do a lot of history today, right? So they went to war and they had big armies that fought one another. And Mark Antony lost. Octavian won. He eventually became known as Caesar Augustus. So you're in, you're in Jerusalem and you've got this civil war going on. Mark Antony, Octavian, and you want to make sure that you curry favor with the new emperor. You better pick who's the new emperor going to be. And Herod in Jerusalem chose Mark Antony. And once the Civil War was done, man, I got a problem. Because Octavian knows that I chose the wrong guy. And he gets called to Rome. Herod gets called to Rome. He thinks he's going to die. He gets in front of Octavian, who is now known as Caesar Augustus. And he literally lays on the floor, takes his crown, and gives it to the Roman emperor. And Octavian lets him sit there for a bit. And then Octavian goes, I have the power to execute this guy. And Herod is fearing for his life. He thinks he's going to get executed because he, he backed the wrong guy. Octavian, Caesar Augustus, in a moment of brilliant strategy and leadership, has him stand and he takes that crown and he puts it back on Herod's head with this idea in mind. I'm going to send this guy back to Rome, and from now on, this guy is going to be looking over his shoulder thinking that I'm coming after him. And so this guy will be obedient to the nth degree in everything I want. And that's exactly what happened. Herod went back to, back to Jerusalem, and he's aware. He's looking over his shoulder at all times thinking, man, I about got executed once, and I'm still the leader. How did that happen? He's afraid of his own shadow. And he never trusted that room would actually let him lead again. And he grew increasingly mentally unstable. And in the midst of his paranoia, he literally went crazy. He murdered his wife, two sons, his brother-in-law, a variety of family members. And then you get to when the wise men show up at Jesus' birth, or sometime thereafter, and, and they say, so he found a new king. Is it any wonder that in that paranoia, then he goes, okay, I want all the babies from Bethlehem, all the boys I want, who are 24 months and older, or younger, I want them killed. It's all out of this paranoia that he might lose a crown. He tried suicide. He was unsuccessful at that. Eventually died of a venereal disease. The evil displayed in his life for all to see. And in all that is going on, 700 years of, of struggle, uh, Herod being really crazy and weird in Jerusalem, and Zechariah is standing in the temple, and he learns that a baby's coming who's going to bring new life and new peace to the nation. And what's ironic is the temple where he's standing. The temple is um, 35 acres in size, the ground around it. 
It's the place we know as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. It's where the Western Wall, where we see people pray, that was built by Solomon. But the rest of it, is, which is the fo focus of modern Judaism, Herod, Herod the Great, built the temple where Zechariah is standing. So when Zechariah learns that his son is going to come, that's totally unexpected, he's standing in a building actually constructed by the crazy guy. Think about it. There's all this mess around the world. There's this mess in Jerusalem. There's this mess with the emperor. And there's a mess in his own life that he doesn't have a baby. And he's standing there in, this, in the place that the crazy guy built. And God shows up. And he learns that God's promise to Abraham and to David centuries before. David is a thousand years before him. He learns this promise of God for comfort and joy. It's actually going to come to pass. It's coming through my family. Zechariah is saying that, man, God swore a covenant of oath, uh, uh, swore a covenant and an oath of care and salvation to us through Abraham and through David. And it's arrived. And we're going to have a guide, namely Jesus, leading our feet into a path of peace. It's an amazing story of comfort and joy, all in the middle of an absolutely crazy mess. Because while the, I don't want you to misunderstand me here that I'm not talking about genealogy, but the, the, I'm not talking about that one person led to another in terms of, of bloodline, but in terms of story, think about it this way. You've got Abraham, and Abraham's story leads to Moses, and Moses' story leads to David, and David's story leads to Zechariah, and Zechariah, actually bloodline kicks in now, leads to, to John. And John's story leads to who? To Jesus. Talk about comfort and joy. Talk about a story that's messy and ugly and got lots of struggle, and yet in the midst of it, what does God say? To Zechariah's song. God is coming to shine on those living in darkness, to those living in the shadow of death. These people are afraid of their lives because of Herod any moment, and the Romans. And it's going to guide our path, guide our feet, pardon me, into the path of peace. So where are you today? Where's your comfort and joy? I'm aware of this. Your mess and my mess. Your story and my story. The struggles of the people around us, some of them in our family, some of them outside our family, whether they have, maybe they be, the struggles have been going on for generations. We have the mess of a pandemic. We have the mess of a nation running amok with a great divide between right and left. We have a, um, a globe fearful of death through COVID. And all of that and more. Again, some of that's inside the house, some of that's outside the house. But I know this, friends. God's covenant is for you because Abraham's story leads to Moses' story and that leads to David's story and that leads to Zechariah's story and that leads to John's story and that leads to Jesus' story. You know where Jesus' story leads to? To you. A guide for your feet leading to a path of peace is before you in Jesus Christ. A true source of comfort and joy and a way to recover Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord, this story of Zechariah standing there in the temple 
in the midst of the crazy days of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, our life is not quite so crazy, maybe, um, but there's certainly lots of chaos. And while we are not maybe fearful of an occupying army or um, a, a national leader that could do us in at any moment, there are certainly people in places around the world where that's the case. The truth is, that mess of around the world impacts us. And Lord, we need your peace not only for the world, but the mess sometimes invades our family life, invades at times our souls. In the places, God, where we have this disparity between your peace and our lives, this week, give us a guide that will lead our feet to a path of peace, we pray. Well, for everybody here in the building, for people online who are watching right now or maybe months from now, I pray that the peace of Christ would invade each person through the power of God Almighty in the name of Jesus, our source of true comfort and joy. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week.